This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Matt, our card for this week is Tim Tuffle, second baseman for the New York Mets, card number 508. Okay, Tim Tuffle, 508. Great, David. I've got this pulled up on the Jumbotron, but before we get to that, we had some follow-up and an error to correct from last week. Is that right? Matt, I need to apologize to the listeners here. I was wrong last week when I said that the game in which Dave Kingman hit three home runs that led to Tommy Lasorda's tirade was a shutout loss by the Dodgers. In fact, it was a a different three home run game that Dave Kingman had against the Dodgers in which he (laughs) hit a home run in the 15th inning to win that game that made Tommy so mad. This was a game in which the Cubs and Dodgers played to 15 innings. Dave Kingman drove in eight runs. Oh my God. The Cubs won 10 to 7. That final three run homer in the 15th inning is what drove Tommy to madness. So I'll encourage folks to go back and listen to that with a with with that context. Go back and listen to Tommy shouting obscenities about Dave Kingman and Dave Kingman's performance. You think it's my opinion of it. I think it was put that in. I don't opinion of his performance he beat us with three home runs what do you mean what is my opinion of his performance i also should talk about the george will sports machine matt i don't know if you've seen this saturday night live a skit from maybe 1990 where george will is running a trivia show the contestants are mike schmidt and tommy lasorda mm-hmm And it's George Will, so of course he's using esoteric quotes, and Tommy Lasorda and Mike Schmidt are having none of it. I I think the importance of that is something we talked about when we talked about Tommy Lasorda is the fact that he was a nationally known figure as a baseball manager, so nationally known that just his presence on a Saturday Night Live skit got a laugh and everybody in the crowd knew who he was. I really don't think that the that any current baseball or really any professional sports manager has that kind of charisma and that kind of uh, profile right now. I would have to agree. None of them have like one-tenth of the charisma of Tommy Lasorda. That's, that's guaranteed. So well, thank you, David, for that mea culpa. This has put the record straight. Now we went to... Welcome back to the show, Brian, our RBI baseball correspondent, to help us talk about today's card. Thank you. Um, Very happy to be here and very excited to talk about not only Tim Tuffle, but also the 1986 Mets. They were one of the iconic teams from this era, uh, kind of like the baseball equivalent of the 85 Bears, where they were famous. Everybody knew who all the players were. They were on television constantly. So this should be a, a pretty colorful show. Great. We're going to, a few things that we'll talk about today, not, we've got some uh, German linguistics, we've got a police blotter, we have an 87 shuffle, we've got beanings and brawls, we have a deep dive on the RBI baseball implications of Tim Tuffle and the proper pronunciation, so we've got a lot in store. But first, let's talk about the card. Um, 
pulling up 508 on the jumbotron here and and david the first thing i notice when i i look at this card tim tuffle mid swing really looks like he's trying to hit this to right field this is this is a good action shot we have we've had a few good swings on these cards but this one it really does look like tim is trying to put a ball in play trying to move runners along he was a right-handed hitter and this one it looks like he's trying to go the opposite way yeah it's it's a very it's an awkward shot this is not a typical body shape that you see on one of these action shots not a, not a typical body shape for the athlete either. It kind of has a Rick Moranis look here of like if Rick Moranis had a had a baseball uniform on. And again, with the theme of 1988 Topps cards, you really can't tell who this is. That, that could be Rick Moranis in a Mets uniform. The interesting thing to me about his body positioning is this is baseball. People are throwing 90 plus miles per hour. This looks like the way you might position yourself if you were playing slow-pitch softball and you were trying to hit it to the weaker fielder in right field. So I think all of us who played softball have done that at one point or another where we basically rotate our body about 45 degrees and specifically try to hit the ball a certain way and make direct contact that takes it to right field. He's trying to hit the ball to the drunk guy. Yes, yes. He sees someone out in right field, and he's he's clearly trying to put the ball there. Maybe he's trying to move a runner from second to third. We can give him the benefit of the doubt here. But that sort of body positioning doesn't seem like it's the type of thing that you would you would normally want to teach a young player. So, all right, now let's flip to the back of the card. So we have Tim, Tim Tuffle here, the second baseman. Am I pronouncing that right? So f- full disclosure, I am s- slightly a German speaker. I would pronounce this Tim Teufel. Teufel is the German word for devil. And so when I look at that, I would call him Tim Teufel. And I think that actually Brian once told me that the correct pronunciation was Tuffel. Or the pronunciation that he went by was Tuffel. Whether it was correct or not, it was the one that was adopted throughout uh, his baseball career. Tim Teufel is Tim the devil. But Tim Tuffel is this guy that we have here. So we asked some of our German language friends of different uses of the term Teufel uh, within German. How might it exist in the culture? Where might this guy's name actually be used elsewhere? And it turns out that Feuerteufel, which means fire devil, was actually the translation given to Firestarter, the 1984 uh, Stephen King film adaptation that starred Drew Barrymore, Heather Locklear, and Martin Sheen. So Feuerteufel, if you were growing up in Germany, might be something that you're familiar with. He says Tuffel. Germans say Teufel. We'll say Tuffel. So Tim Tuffel from Greenwich, Connecticut. Greenwich, Connecticut is well known as being one of the wealthiest towns in the country. Greenwich is famous in pro wrestling circles. I know I've been described before as the pro wrestling correspondent for the 1988 Tops uh, podcast. The McMahon family uh, resides in Greenwich, Connecticut. Vince McMahon, the longtime owner of the WWE, and he's still the president of the board. Linda McMahon, who's been a political candidate, his wife. And then their children, Shane McMahon and Stephanie McMahon, each of whom are characters um, on television, along with being executives in the company. So back in 1999, they decided to play off of the fact that Shane McMahon, Vince's son, had this wealthy upbringing. 
So they brought in some of Shane's real-life childhood friends and nicknamed them the Mean Street Posse and billed them as being from the mean streets of Greenwich, Connecticut. And they would come to the ring wearing sweater vests, those V-neck sweater vests with sleeved T-shirts underneath them and khakis. And they would say that they were the, the mean kids from the mean streets of Greenwich, Connecticut and called themselves the Mean Street Posse. It was phenomenally entertaining at the time. My friends and I, who grew up in Northbrook on the North Shore, we actually went to a Monday Night Raw on August 8th, 1999, dressed up as the North Shore Posse, each of us having gone to Gap, (laughs) bought khakis, bought those sweater vests, and held up a sign saying that we were the North Shore Posse. That, of course, was, in pro wrestling circles, a famous Monday Night Raw because it was the Monday Night Raw where Chris Jericho debuted for the WWE and got into a verbal spat with The Rock. So I cannot think of Tim Tuffle without thinking of the Mean Street Posse from the mean streets of Greenwich, Connecticut. Well, now we're going to just think about (laughs) Tim wearing a sweater vest, but he was actually from a more working class background despite that affluence. He was was a bit of a late bloomer. He ended up going to junior college in Florida and was a walk-on to a junior college team, which is pretty outrageous for a guy who went on to a pro career. He was drafted out of that junior college, but instead transferred to Clemson University, was drafted then again after a season in Clemson, but returned for his senior year, was then drafted in the second round after his senior year by the Minnesota Twins. Jimmy Key was on that same Clemson team, so a very good college baseball team. Drafted by the Twins in 1980, plays a couple seasons in the minors, which interestingly are not included on this card. I feel like they had some space. Yeah, so looking at the fun fact, Tim led International League second baseman with 711 total chances and 109 double or double plays at Toledo in 1983, and was Loops Player of the Year. I think that this really this fun fact really buries the lead, and the fun fact here is that. Tim had a ridiculous 1983 season with the Toledo Mudhens. They talk about his defensive capabilities. He also hit 323, had 27 home runs, and 100 RBIs. He was the MVP of the International League in 1983. Wow. So clearly he's moving through the Twins minor league system, gets called up late in the 1983 season, so there there wasn't much to say about his 1983 season. As you'll see on the back of the card, he only played in 21 games. But going back to the German language translation here, I found an interesting note in his bio that he is linked with Jim Gott. Jim Gott's last name. Gott means God in German. Teufel is the devil. So this battle of God versus the devil in his first at bat versus Jim Gott Tim Teufel hit a home run. In his second at bat, he got a single. Mm-hmm. So at one point, the devil was winning. <laughs> uh, it, but in his next at bat, Tim flied out, which brought his average down to 666. Which, oh. If one of them had just retired there, it would have been perfect. <laughs> Unfortunately for Tim, uh, he faced Jim Gott 11 times in his career. He only got hits in those first two at-bats. So he ended with a 222 average Mm. versus Jim Gott. So now we know definitively that God will ultimately triumph over the devil. I feel much better about (laughs) life generally uh, based on the Tim Tuffle, Jim Gott dynamic. A clash for all eternity. Excellent. So that's the 1983 season. 
1984, his first full rookie year for the Twins, uh, he played 157 games. Yeah, that was an interesting season for the Twins. They went 81 and 81, which was good enough for second place. And they only finished three games behind the Royals in first place. And Tim had a, a really good season, finished fourth in rookie of the year voting, 14 home runs. Pretty good rookie season. A teammate of Kirby Puckett that year as well. Kirby Puckett would go on to be a Hall of Famer. I believe he was third in the Rookie of the Year voting that season as well. So you had this rookie combination with the twins of Kirby Puckett and Tim Tuffle that might portend good things to come. So to 1985, the twins were out of contention. They were below 500. Tim had played in 138 games. And Tim looks like has an okay season, but then demands to be traded. Tim was losing a little bit of playing time to Steve Lombardozzi, the second baseman of choice for the Twins going into their 86-87 seasons. Tim was kind of falling into a platoon. He felt like he had earned the spot with his play in 84. And he asks for a trade. And Brian, I don't know if you want to, do you want to talk about that trade? Sure. So... Tim asks for a trade and ends up being traded to the New York Mets. And the Mets at this point, they'd started to ascend into competitiveness, but they hadn't yet made the playoffs. That core team for the 86 Mets was in place with players like Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Gooden performing at peak levels. But the Mets in 85 couldn't overcome the St. Louis Cardinals. The Cardinals will be their foil for much of the 80s, uh, with the Cardinals winning the NL East in 85 and in 87. The Mets felt like they needed additional batting against left-handed pitching, so they did two things. They went out and they acquired Tim Tuffle, and they also brought up Kevin Mitchell, who will be, I'm sure, the subject of, an, of a future 1988 Tops podcast. So Tim Tuffle came over as part of a trade where the Mets gave up Billy Bean, who was the future general manager of the Oakland A's, of course, and the subject of the movie Moneyball. Um, and then also Joe Klink, a future A's lefty reliever, and Bill Latham, who only pitched about 16 innings for the Twins in 1986. So the Mets got Tim Tuffle back and didn't give up a whole lot and were able to then create a platoon situation of their own where Tim Tuffle and Wally Backman were the platoon, with Tuffle playing primarily against um, left-handed pitching. It's ironic then that Tim Tuffle demands to be traded to escape one platoon situation with Steve Bombardozzi and then gets plugged into a platoon immediately with Wally Backman, one of the more popular players in the Mets of that, that era. This 86 Mets team is coming off a season where they went 98 and 64 in 1985. Big things expected. They still had the core of the team together going into 1986. After one game in 1986, in which the Mets won, so they were, you know, they were 1 and 0, George Foster one-time MVP, great slugger of the 70s Cincinnati Reds, pulls together some of the guys to record a song that is, I think, immortal. <laughs> and, uh, David, uh, David, are you referring to Get Metsmerized? Get This song is terrible. It is. So George Foster was a 37-year-old. I don't know why these young players on the Mets were listening to their 37-year-old teammate about what was going to be cool and hip. 
they decided to do a Super Bowl shuffle style song one game into the season. Normally that doesn't go well for teams, but this included guys like Lenny Dykstra, Foster, Dwight Gooden, Daryl Strawberry, Howard Johnson, none of whom could sing, none of whom could rap. It includes lyrics like Rick Aguilera rhyming his last name with terror. (laughs) Daryl Strawberry says, California is where I'm from, but for New York, I hit home runs. So you're going to get those kind of outstanding lyrics, which, you know, actually might fit in with some 80s rap songs. But the... You know, we'll drop in Tim. For some reason, they asked their teammate Tim Tuffle to join. And Tim raps as if he's never heard music. (laughs) He's, He's really bad. I'm Tim Tuffle. Let me begin by saying I was once a twin. I made the move. It feels just right. I've been mesmerized. I see the light. My name is Hojo. I'm here. This is a song I'm going to try to forget. You wouldn't be alone in having forgotten this song. It seems like everyone forgot about this song, including the team and the players involved. Even though they recorded it in April of that year, they didn't release it until August. Hmm. It didn't sell great sold 120 copies of this special edition by the time it was released george foster was not was no longer on the mets Mm. we're going to need to put together the ultimate list of these songs in an ongoing hierarchy get mesmerized brewers fever are in the lower the lower end of that category completely agree now that we've all been mesmerized let's talk about this season they got off to just a gangbuster start in 1986. Uh, they started the season at 20 and four. So they were already winning um, a significant portion of their games right off the bat. At the all-star break, they were 59 and 25. They were really the iconic team of that 86 season. Now, some of the um, source material for the more colorful aspects of the 86 season is from Jeff Perlman's great book, The Bad Guys One, which I certainly uh, highly recommend to anybody who wants to read about a team full of big personalities or has a specific interest in the 1986 Mets. And one of the more interesting tales that comes from that book is the relationship that Tim had with some of his teammates, in particular, Daryl Strawberry. So Tim was viewed as more of the mild-mannered Christian type across this group of players, many of whom were heavy drinkers, some of whom could be quite outspoken. And apparently he would get a lot of razzing from Daryl Strawberry. And Daryl would call him Richard Head, and then would use that name Richard Head as his nickname in all sorts of different derisive comments that he would make about Tim Tuffle. And one day on the plane, Tim Tuffle got sick of it and finally stood up to his teammate Daryl Strawberry, who's probably twice his size and certainly 10 times as famous, and stood up to him and said, I'm not taking any more of this. And the players got between them. And I guess from that point forward, Daryl Strawberry respected Tim Tuffle, and the two became quite good friends. Later this season came an incident where a number of players celebrating the birth of Tim Tuffle's first child decided to go out in the town one night in Houston after a game. And they went to a bar named Cooters that apparently was well known for being a place that athletes would go to quite often. Uh, There were five of them that went out to Cooters that night. It was Rick Aguilera, Ron Darling, Tim Tuffle, Bob Ojeda, and Daryl Strawberry. They went down, they sat, they had shots uh, they had additional drinks. Apparently, one of the things about Cooters that was it was famous for was athletes in town didn't have to pay in order to drink there. 
And according to the Bad Guys 1, Doug Sisk, uh, a Mets reliever, had been arrested there two years earlier and warned them before they went that Cooters may not be a place that you want to go to. Um, they may be setting you up to where you're going to end up arrested by the end of the night if you go there because that's the experience that Doug Sisk had had. Uh, Strawberry apparently decided to head out early that night. You know, he's, he's far and away the most famous of the bunch. Probably didn't enjoy being out in that atmosphere as part of this big club with all these people staring at him. So apparently he left at about 1120. The rest of the Mets stayed there and can continued to drink throughout the course of the night, uh, celebrating the birth of Tim Tuffle's first child. And they go and it goes past closing time and apparently the Mets won't leave. And eventually they're asked more forcefully to leave and they start heading out the door and Tim's got half a beer and someone says, no, you can't take that beer out into the street and tries to take the beer from him. And apparently the person who was doing this was an off-duty police officer who was on security detail for Cooters. Tim responded forcefully to that, apparently attempted to punch this individual in his inebriated state and then was thrown up against a car and held there. Ron Darling came out to check on the situation. He was arrested himself. At some point, Bob Ojeda and Rick Aguilera came out to check on them. They ended up being arrested as well. And the four Mets ended up spending the night in jail and receiving charges for this incident at Cooters. This made the front pages of all the New York tabloids the next day. Uh, David Letterman even had a joke on his national late night talk show about Tim Tuffle. He said he contacted Mets management and they told him, that that was the most solid contact Tuffle has made all year. So the next day after these players were arrested, apparently due to some inside connections, they were able to get out of jail and they actually played the next night in Houston, even though you know they were in the slammer at uh, 3 a.m. Roger McDowell, who was a great reliever on the mid-80s Mets and known as being an all-time prankster, decided to take the lockers of each of the four players who were arrested and used athletic tape to make it look like they were little jails uh, within <laughs> each of the lockers. It's the type of thing that if you know anything about Roger McDowell, you can completely see him doing. And then for Tim Tuffle, since he was the player who threw the famous punch, he covered Tim Tuffle's nameplate in the locker room and replaced it with the name Macho Camacho, uh, named after Hector Macho Camacho, the famous and flamboyant boxer from the 1980s. So Tim Tuffle got quite a bit of good-natured ribbing from his teammates. They were certainly the sort of group who would look at an arrest like this as more of a point of pride than as something that uh, they should look down on one of their teammates for. That is awesome. Brian, that's interesting uh, that that happened in Houston because the Mets famously defeated the Houston Astros in the NLCS and ended that series in the Astrodome in a 16-inning game now let's go to the 86 World Series itself. The 1986 World Series was one of the great World Series of all time. It may be the most famous World Series in a lot of ways. The World Series in this era is significantly bigger than it is today. It's more on par with the Super Bowl. According to the Bad Guys 1, Game 2, which was a Sunday night game, Gooden versus Clemens, the biggest possible matchup, two major media markets, New York against Boston, had 65 million people watching it. Today's World Series numbers end up with about 10 to 15 million people watching it with certain games accepted, like Game 7, 2016. Ronald Reagan, at one point during Game 3, interrupted a state dinner with Helmut Kohl to give an update on the World Series score. It's, of course, the World Series where the Mets won Game 6 over the Red Sox when the ball went through Bill Buckner's legs. And everybody remembers that for so long. And certainly from 86 up until 2004, 
Bill Buckner was saddled with this albatross of having made that error in Game 6 of the World Series. People forget, of course, the game was tied at that point, so it wasn't as though the Red Sox were assured a victory if he'd have fielded the ball cleanly. But he wasn't the only player who made a key error to determine the outcome of a game in that World Series. Game 1 of the World Series, Tim Tuffle, who was the only Mets player that actually hit that game, he went 2-for-3, made a key error in the seventh inning and allowed the only run in a one-run loss. So Tim Tuffle, unfortunately, was saddled at that point as being the GOAT. Now, Tuffle did hit a home run in Game 5 and ended up finishing the World Series hitting 444. Didn't play in that famous Game 6. He did start Game 7, went 0 for 2 with a walk. So Tim Tuffle had a pretty good World Series overall. Unfortunately, after Game 1, it looked like maybe this was a, a World Series where he would be known more for his infamy, and, and it ended up being Bill Buckner who ended up being known for having the ball go through his legs and not Tim Tuffle. So the Mets win 86, but in 1987... Tim Tuffle has a career year and begins something that we call the shuffle, the Tuffle shuffle. What are we talking about? We've talked a little bit about some batters with interesting batting stances. And Tim Tuffle's stance from some a few videos I've seen, he kind of has a flat bat, lays the bat down before he takes a swing. But in 87, he started to do something called the shuffle where he would wiggle his butt before the pitcher started his motion to get into a rhythm with the pitcher. And he said that he based this off of something he saw Mike Schmidt do. This was after the 1986 season, so coming off a World Series victory, but going into what would be Tim's biggest year, he started doing this tuffle shuffle. And we will uh, include a link to that little butt wiggle in the (laughs) show notes. So I'm looking at this YouTube that's showing the this motion. I think that it's called a shuffle because it rhymes with tuffle, but it is much more of like a hula hoop motion that you would make if you're keeping up a hula hoop. He's rotating he's rotating his hips, keeping his feet planted, and it's I, it would be distracting to me if I were a pitcher, but there's nothing shuffling about it because his feet are not moving. And there are very few words that rhyme with tuffle. So I can see why th- this would have been difficult. Uh, duffle, uh, fluffle, it's not going to work. None of those are going to work in describing it. Shuffle is the closest they can get, but I, I object to the name. Noted. But it leads to a career year for him. Tim went 308 with a, a 545 slugging percentage. He hit 14 home runs, 61 RBIs. He only played in 97 games, so still in that platoon situation with Wally Backman. This season is kind of like uh, 1988 Topps legend Randy Reddy's season. Tim had the 18th best offensive wins above replacement in the National League and was the only player in the top 50 in war to play fewer than 100 games. And this was actually a historic season in those terms. Among players who played fewer than 100 games, this is the 19th best offensive war season ever. So the names ahead of him in the modern era are guys like Ted Williams, Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, and Fernando Tatis Jr., all of the greats. (laughs) A, A really good season for Tim. He attributed that to the shuffle. The Mets finished 92 and 70, three games behind the Cardinals, But another thing in 1987 
was RBI Baseball. So we've talked in the past about what teams were included in the first RBI Baseball game. Brian, do you want to talk about the Mets in RBI Baseball and Tim Tuffle? Sure. As we've discussed, the RBI Baseball game has two all-star teams and the playoff teams from the 1986 and 1987 seasons. That leaves the 1986 Mets as one of the four playoff teams from that season as part of the game. Tim Tuffle in that game is a backup player. Each team has eight batters as starters, uh, four pitchers, and four bench players. Tim is one of the four bench players for the Mets. The Mets as a team are a so-so team. I certainly enjoy playing with them because of the nostalgia of playing with players like Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Gooden and players who you associate so closely with that era, you know, Gary Carter and Keith Hernandez, Mookie Wilson, Money Dykstra. But they're not one of the stronger teams in the game. I'd certainly put them behind Detroit, who we've talked about previously, and even Minnesota, who we talked about for a bit. Daryl Strawberry is great in the team. Doc Gooden's a, a terrific pitcher. The rest of the team is pretty average, although they do have Jesse Roscoe, who's kind of a quintessential side armor in the game. So if you want to play with the sidearm pitcher, you have Jesse Roscoe at your disposal. Now, Tuffle, despite the fact that he's a bench player, he probably is a player that you should have in your lineup. The Mets have two of the weakest players in the game as part of their starting lineup, Rafael Santana and Wally Backman, uh, according to an online ranking of all 120 RBI baseball batters, those are two of the worst three batters in the entire <laughs> game. So you're better off subbing out one of them for Howard Johnson and maybe subbing out the other one for Tim Tuffle. So Tim Tuffle should be part of your lineup. He actually has a decent amount of power in the game. He's not, a, he's not such a bad player. He ranks 88th out of 120 in that overall player ranking, which isn't too bad for a bench player. He's, he's slotted between Tony Pena and Billy Hatcher to give you some sense of where he falls. So if you're playing with the Mets, understand you might be playing at a slight disadvantage, but Tim Tuffle should be a part of your lineup. Moving on from the 1987 season, there were a couple of incidences with Reds pitchers hitting Tim Tuffle. First in 1988, Tom Browning had a balk called on him after Tim stepped out of the box and then proceeded to hit Tim Tuffle, which resulted in benches clearing, Daryl Strawberry charging the mound, and also then leads us into 1989, a second incident, and another popular topic of conversation on the 1988 Tops podcast. Baseball brawls. This is a good one. Rob Dibble, famous for a very good fastball and a really bad decision-making, comes into a game after Tim has a very good performance against Tom Browning and hits Tim right square in the back. This leads to Tim charging the mound, getting in a few good punches on Rob Dibble, Bench is clear. Juan Samuel ends up kicking Norm Charlton. After the game, the fight continues into the tunnel. And there's security gets involved. Norm Charlton ends up calling the Mets locker room and challenging guys to come meet him. They never really got much closer than 20 feet from each other. But you'll see in this, in this video that we'll post in the show notes, a really good baseball brawl. But this, along with the fight in Houston, shows Tim as being, I think, well-respected among his teammates, his teammates willing to back him up and come to his defense, even though he's a pretty mild-mannered guy. But also, he's not afraid to charge the mound if he's being pushed to it. If he's pushed, he becomes a teufel. That seems clear. <laughs> Perfect. Well, let's finish up. Tim Tuffle's career and then his connection to Bernie Madoff. 
Tim lost a little bit of his spot in the lineup uh, due to the emergence of 1989 tops collector's favorite Greg Jeffries. Greg Jeffries came in, became kind of an everyday second baseman, and Tim became kind of surplus to requirements. He was traded to the Padres for Gary Templeton in 1991. He had a few more kind of undistinguished seasons with the Padres, and he ends up retiring after 11 seasons in the majors at age 34. Overall, he had a 254 average and 86 home runs in his 11-season career. After that, David, it looks like he became a minor league coach for one of our favorite teams in the 1988 Tops podcast, the Leones del Caracas from the Venezuelan <laughs> League that Jay Baller played for. Yes, and Tim worked his way through the Mets minor league system, making stops at many different levels. He also coached in Venezuela for a season in 2011 and finally ended up as the third base coach for the major league club. He served in that role from 2011 until 2016, but still remains with the Mets organization as a roving minor league infield instructor, as well as a team ambassador. Okay. So, but I have in the notes that he was invested in the Ponzi scheme with Bernie Madoff to the tune of $1.2 million. Is that, is that right? Yes. Tim was... Tim, along with other New York luminaries and Mets-connected <laughs> individuals, including the ownership team of the Mets, were involved with Bernie Madoff and invested money with Bernie Madoff. It's been alleged that the owners of the Mets were maybe more in the know than they would like to admit about the Ponzi scheme, but there's no allegation that Tim knew that this was a fraud. Tim invested money with Madoff and actually took returns on those investments above his principal. There is a Madoff settlement fund to pay back those who invested money. The trustee of that fund sued for $1.2 million in returns that he collected. Mm, they also okay. sued the Wilpons, the owners of the Mets, for hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, I have not found what came out of the lawsuit against Tuffle, the Wilpons have paid back tens of millions of dollars to the trustee. But Tim made investments and actually was paid back from, from Madoff, but has said he knew nothing and there's no allegation that he actually knew about the fraud. One interesting note that I found here about Tim's family, his son, Sean, was a minor league pitcher in the Mets and Tigers organizations. Now he's a financial advisor, so hopefully he gives better financial advice than Bernie Madoff. But an interesting note here was that the reason that the Mets were out celebrating at Cooter's Bar in Houston was to celebrate the birth of Sean Tuffle. So I thought that was a nice way to bring it back around to the fight in Houston. Brian, how would you sum up the career and the man that is Tim Tuffle. Well, it's interesting because I think that Tim Tuffle, the man, is known by his teammates as being more of a mild-mannered, hard-working guy, nose to the grindstone. But Tim Tuffle, the character through the 88 top set, is actually far more colorful than that. Whether it's the incident in Houston, the 1986 team writ large, 
the different base brawls that he was involved in over the years. <laughs> There's a lot of great colorful stories associated with Tim Tuffle. So Tim Tuffle, I think, is a perfect example of someone where once you dig beneath the surface, there's a lot more than meets the eye. That's a great way to wrap it up. So thank you, Brian. Appreciate having you on the show again. Thank you, David. Thank you to you at home for listening. If you are secretly the devil, if you have <laughs> been mesmerized, if you have a favorite player from the 1988 top set that you would like us to review, please contact us. We're at tops1988 on Twitter. And you can email us at 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash 1988topspodcast. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.